Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Rarely is someone profoundly, inconsolably disturbed by a poster, but Abigail Robertson was. She was only 16 when the poster came out. It was an advertisement for flour to use for baking, which seems like just about the most innocuous thing in the world. Well, it wasn't. The year was 1902, and what Robertson saw horrified her. She saw herself a picture she had posed for in a photography studio, which the flower manufacturer, Franklin Mills, had somehow gotten a hold of. The case over whether the company was entitled to this private picture of her ended up in court. Her suit begins a kind of whole chain of cases in state courts around the use of one's image without one's permission. Sarah Igo is an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt University, and she says today's worries about privacy aren't all that new. In fact, there were a rash of technologies in the late 1800s and early 1900s that made people feel like privacy was being stolen from them. Technologies like photography, particularly instant photography, and mass media, and if you can believe it, postcards. When postcards came on board, of course, anyone could read uh, the back of a postcard from the mail carrier to a nosy neighbor. And so there's this, you know, small, uh, but I think very interesting and telling kerfuffle uh, around the etiquette of postcard writing, that people shouldn't be spilling their secrets on these cards. The rise of telephones also seemed to many in the public like a serious violation of privacy. Telephone operators, uh, wiretappers of various sorts, party lines in um, domestic telephone communications, all of these meant that people were communicating with each other about private matters, but that a whole bunch of people could potentially at any point be listening in. And the same was true for the telegraph in terms of communications over telegraph cables. Both the government and criminals of various sorts, it was well known, could, could tap into those communications. Sarah Igo's new book is The Known Citizen, A History of Privacy in Modern America. And she argues that the story of privacy isn't linear. We didn't have a whole bunch of privacy in some previous era that we continue to lose piece by piece. What we want, what we demand, what we hope for, it keeps changing. Which brings us back to Abigail Robertson, the girl who was shocked to see herself on the flower poster. Robertson won her case in court, but when she got to the state level on appeal, she lost. Her loss enraged the public. The chief judge, Alton Parker, said there was no, quote, so-called right of privacy. Parker was pilloried, but he went on to run for president against Theodore Roosevelt. And if you've never heard of Alton Parker, well, you know what happened in that election. The U.S., meanwhile, kept grappling with new inventions and ideas that required, often, compromises in our privacy. Social security numbers were one of those that that I think Americans really weighed and made a trade-off about, that this number, which did allow the government to track one's earnings and uh, employment history and sometimes health history as well, that that it was worth it to have economic security. And so in the 1930s, there are certainly debates about this number, uh, the the social security number we all know and uh, maybe love. And there are lots of debates about it. But in the end, Americans are, are pretty willing to have that number in exchange for economic rights and economic security. By the 1960s and 70s, the nature of debates about privacy were changing. In some ways, people were growing more open, which we will get to. But in some ways, they wanted more autonomy. Enter a 1965 Supreme Court case, Griswold versus Connecticut. 
So we've been talking thus far about communications technologies and mass media and so forth. And and what's really fascinating is that in the United States, the right to privacy, a constitutional right rather than a civil liability for invasion of privacy, the constitutional right comes from this quirky birth control case in Connecticut. And that particular case in 1965 was about married people's use of contraceptives and also contraceptive counseling and um, the state law that had banned those practices is overturned by the Supreme Court. So it's quite interesting that really a wealth of different privacy debates that had been going on up until this point about wiretapping, about invasive mass media and publicity and so forth, um, get funneled through a birth control case, a bodily case or a case about what was called decisional autonomy eventually, uh, about the right to a certain kind of freedom uh, to decide on your own intimate practices. What happens in its aftermath is that the right to privacy gets invoked more often and more uh, successfully often in reproductive rights and sexual freedom cases. So in a way, a whole range of privacy issues and questions get routed through reproductive and sexual rights cases. So yeah, it's you know an accident of history in a way that that's where we get our constitutional right, and um, it's been a controversial right. And you know one might want to ask whether if it had been the right to privacy came to us from a different direction, you know, from a wiretapping case, if we might think about it differently, and if we might have more durable privacy rights. Do you feel like, so obviously Roe versus Wade, a case which happened just a few years after birth control was legalized nationally, it's still hotly debated. Do you feel like that right to privacy that was established by both cases, um, that that's really still kind of like up in the air in terms of being debated? Yes. I mean, of course, uh, both contraception and abortion are, are very much in uh, play as right. political issues. Right. And I think, you know, the kind of core of that chain of cases from Griswold uh, to Roe v. Wade, which was about decisional autonomy, or that's how it evolved. I don't know that there's as much contention about that as about the practices that it's been attached to, that Mm. is, sexual liberty. And a lot of legal scholars have criticized those decisions for relying on a right to privacy rather than something else, a right to liberty, for example, or a right to equal protection of women under the law. And I think there's a lot of ground for that kind of argument. You know, what is interesting and is getting conflated, I guess, in these decisions is whether the right to privacy is is only that, you know, or is only attached to those issues rather than something else. But of course, when we talk about privacy being about our data or about our information or about our financial records, we can't forget that there are still real privacy battles being waged over reproductive control, right, you know, and right. over, you know, whether someone has the right to do what they want to do uh, with their body. So that bodily piece of it has never gone away and, and won't go away way. Hmm. Um, Let's stay in the 1970s for a minute, which you point to as this kind of transformational decade in terms of privacy. Um, And in a very different vein from Roe v. Wade, uh, there was a TV show that you highlight in the 70s. I'd never heard of it before. Um, It was called An American Family. It debuted in 1973 on PBS, and it followed a real family uh, from Santa Barbara, California, which meant it chronicled romances and tensions and divorce. Uh, Here's a clip of it. This New Year's will be unlike any other that has been celebrated at 35 Wooddale Lane. For the first time, the family will not be spending it together. Pat Loud and her husband, Bill, separated four months ago after 20 years of marriage. Sarah, I go, um, why was this documentary important in 1973? 
An American Family, which some people listening may remember, was 12 episodes in the life of the Loud family who allowed those cameras in. Uh, that was the first shock, that they allowed PBS right. uh, and their cameras into their lives uh, for a solid year, recording not everything, but but much more than had been revealed in a mainstream documentary before. And people were shocked by, you know, titillated, fascinated, also shocked uh, by the documentary in certain ways, which had very high viewership. That the Loud family in Santa Barbara allowed these cameras in, that they allowed their dirty laundry to be aired before millions of viewers, and that they then became instant celebrities out of it, (laughs) interviewed on talk shows, offered speaking gigs, uh, and so forth. It, It seemed like a transformation in what the very contents of what one's private life were. And so the genre, because it was popular, because it was debated widely in the press, became part of popular consciousness in the 1970s and, again, moved the line between what people thought was public and what was private. Not everybody agreed uh, that the the show was a good idea or that the loud should have gone before the cameras, but they couldn't deny that there was a kind of allure to doing it and that people wanted to watch. And look how unshocking it is to us now that a family would let cameras or an individual (laughs) would let cameras into their lives. I mean, like, from the real housewives to, you know, the real world to uh, the Kardashians. Like, this is not surprising at all, right? Yes, yes. And this was really, American Family is really the progenitor of most of those shows. And the very fact that there's a kind of history of um, shock or decreasing shock, right, right, or familiarity is part of this story for sure. And it also speaks to this, like, underlying paradox with privacy, which is that we want it and we really Mm -hmm. want to violate other people's privacy at the same time. Yes, yes. Both of which suggest it has a certain kind of value to us, right? It has a commercial value. It has a personal value. And that it isn't it isn't gone, you know, by any means. It's where I really take issue with commentaries that say Americans don't care about it anymore. Mm-hmm. They care about it a lot, but they care about it in both ways. It's so valuable that they want to know what's going on in other people's private lives and that they want to keep other people out of theirs. So speaking actually to that value of privacy and kind of the allure of knowing other people's secrets, um, in the 1970s, there was a television personality named Phil Donahue who started a talk show that would go on to talk about all kinds of things. It would talk about uh, pre-sexual abuse, uh, divorce, people having money problems. And these are things that I think once upon a time people would have thought were amazing that they were discussed on TV. And that gave rise to a generation of shows in the 80s and the 90s um, talking about these kinds of things. Uh, Probably the most successful one uh, was hosted by Oprah Winfrey. Here's a little bit of that show. From the outside, it looks like she has the perfect life. She's a stay-at-home mother of six children, which in itself is a really huge job. She lives in a big house in the suburbs, drives a new car, wears expensive clothes, And she may look like a million bucks, but behind closed doors, it's an entirely different story. Everything I do looks great and it, you know, looks fun from the outside, but nobody knows what you go through on what I'm going through on the inside. And it's a temporary fix because once the clothes are gone and once the money's gone, what? there's nothing else. Sarah, I go, that was a woman on Oprah talking about how, you know, she was just sort of compulsively shopping and couldn't stop. And, and you know, people think one thing about her, but here's her private life. And it's just really mm. different from, like, the public image um, that she puts out there. I wonder if those shows changed our view of what is and is not 
a private thing. Yes. I mean, Oprah, Donahue, the earlier and you know later iterations of the talk show have to be, I think, part of our understanding of what's happened to privacy in the United States. We often hear uh, Americans don't care anymore about their privacy. They just give it away. But it's not so simple as that. There are ways in which these formats built on uh, you know, pre-existing sort of shifts going on in American culture, whereby to be a full and authentic person, one needed to be one's real self. Right. And cast off that that outer uh, public persona as right. uh, as the woman was really just saying that. Right. It, right. Laying herself bare voluntarily or at least, you know, relatively voluntarily on a talk show to say, you know, here here is who I really am. So a whole industry, of course, develops around this mm-hmm. in the, the personal memoir as well as the talk show. And we see versions of that on, uh, um, you know, social media in all kinds of ways today. But thinking about this in conjunction with parts of our earlier conversation, this is happening at the same time that Americans are generally much more protective of things like, say, their social security numbers, mm-hmm. right, or their financial information, right. or even something simple like their telephone number. So I think the shift that we're seeing is a kind of protection around pieces of information that might be aggregated to uh, harm us in some way versus um, a kind of developing openness, right? right, in revealing who we really are and not having shame about that, right? right? So right. stigmas are falling away, yet private data is becoming more valuable. Uh, so those both are different pieces of privacy, but they're moving in different directions. So fast forwarding a little bit, um, how do you think the rise of the internet has affected privacy, both kind of real privacy and then like our perception of the privacy that we have? Um, so the Internet is a, a huge topic for privacy, of course. Um, and one of the things the Internet did was make opting out more difficult of giving away one's information, of presuming that you intended to share and disseminate uh, your personal details unless you very carefully and deliberately opted out. And that really reversed, as Dana Boyd, uh, who's written about this really nicely, that really reversed a tradition where it was actually hard to get information. It was hard to get information out and to circulate it. It, it, it flip-flopped that. So that, that was was a hugely important part of the internet and the way that it's intersected with privacy debates. It also, of course, gave Americans who have long, um, many, uh, long wanted an audience of some kind, right, and a kind of influence and a reach, exactly that. Gave them a platform for their blogs, for their thoughts, for, you know, sharing their photographs of their meals, <laughs> you know, giving, allowing their friends to see their movements. It allowed people to do what they've been doing since the days of the postcard, which is, you know, share information about themselves. And and so those those two facets, um, again, have come together in really powerful ways in the uh, ability of now many, many, many people to look into and use that information in ways that were not always intended, of course, by uh, the people who put it out there to begin with. Let me just take a step out of history here for a minute. We'll step back into it for a minute. But I think in some ways people think of like history is a story of privacy being lost, right? You know, mm-hmm. you lost some with the with uh, the telephone. People can listen into calls and the telegraph and then the Internet and, you know, and closed circuit television and cameras all over cities. And you just keep going and people know more and more about you. But in some sense, if I th- if you think back to like medieval London or something, people mm-hmm. living very close together, walls being not very thick, you can just hear what people are saying on the other side, you know, or people living in very small villages and small communities where everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everybody's business. In some ways, like tomorrow, if I walk through Rio or Beijing or like New York City, 
like nobody would know who I was. I mean, mm-hmm. I can walk mm-hmm. through anonymously and maybe privately. I mean, in some ways, I feel like you could argue that we maybe have more privacy than we had hundreds of years ago. Absolutely. I think this is what is missed often in our contemporary debates, this idea that, that privacy is something, some quantity that was there once <laughs> and is now gone and or eroding or slipping through our fingers. But no, it's true that we live privately, uh, more privately in many ways than did people a couple centuries ago in terms of uh, right house construction, ways that neighborhoods are designed and homes are designed, but also in terms of our very rights and our sensibilities. Our sense of what should be private um, has changed. And so it I think it's really a mistake to think about privacy as all moving in one direction. Um, this is what makes it hard to chart and hard to kind of place at any given point. But it's it's zigzagged. And in certain ways, even though perhaps we have less privacy in our communications today or around our personal information, say, um, its accessibility to others, we have more privacy, I think, some ways in the ways we live and the ways we think about ourselves as private uh, people who ought not to have the state or our neighbors peering in through our windows all the time. So what's your diagnosis of where we are now? Are we like a lot less private than we were 100 years ago? I don't think so, but I do think that the substance of our privacy and our ideas about privacy rights uh, have changed and changed in conjunction with all kinds of things, technological development, state developments, uh, commercial, uh, and so on, architectural even. I think if I were to describe our current moment, I think what we are experiencing are two different trajectories coming together and have created a lot of problems. Um, One of them is the ability for many different agencies to know us very well um, by matching and merging technologies. The other is this uh, impetus uh, that many citizens have had since the 1970s to disclose more of their authentic selves Mm. on different kinds of media platforms. Those are coming together in ways that are, I think, um, were unanticipated and which have meant that there is a ton of information out there about us. Some of it uh, kept by record keepers, some of it disclosed voluntarily by us. Um, um, And then we've got, we're in this technological and commercial moment where all of that is valuable to others. And there are many, many ways to harness it. So those two things have come together. They didn't they didn't necessarily have to come together, but they have. And I think that explains our uh, scandal laden moment, you know, from Equifax to Cambridge Analytica and whatever is next. Sarah Igo is the author of The Known Citizen, A History of Privacy in Modern America. She's also an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt. Sarah, thank you very much. Thanks for the conversation. I enjoyed it. On our website, we'll have more about Abigail Robertson and the flower ad that I mentioned at the beginning that changed how Americans think about privacy. That's at innovationhub.org. 